Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome to episode 50. Can we believe it? We've actually managed to get <laughs> round into kind of grown-up numbers. Like, this is a real thing, despite my... Uh, my, my, my guesses and my, my concerns and my worries along the way, it actually seems to have come round that we've got ourselves a little audience and we've got ourselves a little thing and uh, this is going on. So thank you very much for all of your support. Um, it's been a couple of years now and uh, I love the emails I get. I love the questions I get. I love um, being able to share my knowledge and uh, my, my adventures with you guys and uh, I hope this goes on to more and more things we've got the, um, the the YouTube is developing very quickly the patreon is developing very quickly we've now got um, nearly 50 people as patreon supporters as well they get early access to the podcast to the YouTube videos and they get access to the one hour seamanship videos which are going out every couple of weeks they seem to be getting a lot of um, a lot of traction a lot of interest uh, I think my background being a sail training instructor for so many years means that we're just in the process of teaching for so long that um, you just get used to sharing all the little details that make life uh, comfortable on board the boat and make things safer and easier and um, yeah very good response from those who have watched the what are we up to like six six of those now uh, on patreon so um, yeah if you haven't already get over and have a look at that patreon.com forward slash the mariner only a couple of dollars a month and that goes towards making all the YouTube videos, making the seamanship videos, and of course this podcast. So where are we up to? Well, we were telling a story in um, episode 49. It's been a kind of interesting couple of weeks with some administration behind the scenes of the podcast. I actually moved back to my old podcast uh, host, which was Podbean. I had moved over to one called Acast, which gave me some um, gave me some functionality in relation to uh, sharing podcasts with the Patreon subscribers versus sharing them with the public. And but in the end, it it you know it wasn't something that was working for me. My my uh, production rate for the blog like dropped to zero. Um, it just wasn't a good thing for me. So I moved back to Podbean. Um, but uh, there was a weird <laughs> interval of like two weeks uh, where. That basically the new episodes of the podcast weren't available. So if you haven't already, go back and have a look at episode 49. It's called A Maxi by Any Other Name. Um, and it's all about us going over to Europe to pick up a boat a couple of months ago. Well, I guess the process started a couple of months ago and we got back like um, about 25 days ago. But uh, we went over to pick up one boat coming from Portugal and then got embroiled in this whole complicated situation with buying this thing, um, which in the end led to uh, making a, a very strong decision. Uh, 10 days into the process in Portugal, we made a very strong decision that hey, this is not going to happen at the speed that we need it to happen at. We've got a lot of people coming. We've got a complex scenario here because of COVID travel restrictions and what everybody is able to do with their schedules. Like we have to make a new plan. So we made a new plan. We ducked out of Portugal, shot to for France, and uh, was very uh, ably assisted by Bernard Gallet Brokerage to get the uh, Maxi Weddell, which is now here in Nova Scotia, 25 meter um, Kevlar carbon mask, beautiful Maxi. It's here now and it's ready to go. Uh, for Spartan but uh, yeah not the boat that we expected to be bringing back so there was a whole story told in episode 49 of the podcast Um, go and find that now you should be able to find it nice and 
easily on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast um, now that I've sorted out the admin. So this is kind of the continuation of that. We're going to do two things in this podcast. I'll tell you all about the uh, transatlantic trip, bringing the uh, Maxi back over to Nova Scotia. Uh, Certainly a very interesting trip from the sailing point of view and dealing with the fact that we hardly knew the boat. Um, A lot of issues that anybody would deal with as they were getting a new boat. Plus, of course, trying to travel through COVID, which we had to adhere to all of the rules and laws in all the different territories that we were working in during this whole project. But um, as we came back over towards North America, um, a few wiggles and jiggles required to make sure that um, everybody got what they wanted, not least the crew who had already um, kind of gone out on a bit of a limb. Some of them were five or six days late back to work. So you can just imagine they were getting a little bit stressed. So I'll tell that story. After that, um, because the boat's here and because um, it's, it, I think it's the appropriate time now, um, Spartan Ocean Racing, which is the company that um, we have done so many miles in the last uh, five or six years. We've had so many people on board. We've done so many events. But obviously during 2020, Spartan Ocean Racing had to basically stop dead. Um, most of 2021 has been exactly the same apart from a few admin things and then this one delivery. But Spartan is restarting this week. Um, we have got the schedule uh, up and running for 2022. Uh, we've got the new website, which will be online by the time this uh, podcast is released. And um, a lot of new things happening, some new events, interesting things. So I'm going to just uh, get into that at the end of this podcast. And you can find out if there's anything there that you'd be interested in. If you'd like to go sailing, see what all these boats are about, come and meet me and the rest of the Spartan team and uh, go and see some interesting places. That's all possible now, thank goodness, we've got out into some kind of vaguely open ground that we roughly know how COVID's working um, and the the industry is starting to kind of turn over again. But um, to start off, let's, uh, let's get back to Brest in France, which is where we were at the end of the last podcast. We had just completed a crazy week of work, having jumped onto the Weddell project um, with, only, with only basically... With only three days left to go in the original schedule that we'd set, uh, we we jumped onto that project by the, let me see, by the second or third day, we had virtually replaced every piece of chandlery on the boat, cleaned through the boat, and uh, we were just getting into, you know, the, the details that need to be checked, the things that need to be looked at. You've got this giant 25-meter vessel, which you've got to check every single detail of because um, with only a couple of days to go, we're about to... Uh, be committing to crossing the Atlantic with a team of eight. So let's get into that. How did that go down? Well, I guess, you know, whether you're setting off on a boat that you know or a boat that you don't know, it's uh, it's good to always to, to know the details of what you're doing. Now, crossing the Atlantic is something I've done many times before. Actually, before this event, I had crossed the Atlantic 29 times. Um, and this was going to be my my, my big 30th birthday or 30th uh, uh, crossing day or whatever you want to put it. Um, but that doesn't mean in any way that I can uh, slow down and stop uh, looking at the details and stop um, dealing with everything as though it's brand new. So whether you're an experienced sailor setting off on this kind of adventure or whether you're somebody who's done it many times before, there's a number of things that you have to go through to make sure that your boat's ready for such a big uh, event. And um, 
I haven't particularly got any notes with me <laughs> as always and I didn't have any notes when we were doing the doing the job but I think without uh, having to stretch myself too far we can uh, we can guess roughly what those uh, areas were so for me whenever I'm setting off on this kind of adventure my first thought is always um, can I get to the end of this uh, this crossing or this race or this regatta and uh, will I be able to write in my logbook um, crew safe vessel sound and then underline it and sign it and change the page on the on the log and it's done it's not to kind of like i don't want to get to the end of it as quickly as i can so that the book's closed and it's done but that's that's the ultimate objective of any voyage has got to be that you get there with your vessel in one piece and uh and that the crew uh, are safe and i would uh, add to that that not just safe physically but also safe emotionally it's um sometimes you can say well look, you, you arrived you're okay but um they've been through such traumas on the boat that um really the fact that their body's intact is the least of their concerns so i just want to be able to get to the end of this transatlantic crossing with vessel uh sound crew safe uh what am i looking at to make that happen well uppermost in my mind is always the safety gear and the tools because you can make mistakes and have bits of equipment which aren't functioning exactly perfectly unexpectedly so or as an oversight if you've got the tools and you know how to use them you can normally correct that situation you can have a piece of equipment missing but if it's a piece of safety equipment that's missing then you can't really um you can't construct that out of components that you have on board. If you've forgotten the can opener, or if you've forgotten a particular size wrench, or if you've forgotten a book, or if you've forgotten a, you know, those bits and bobs, well, fair enough, okay, you can work your way around that. But if you've forgotten a piece of safety equipment and the worst does happen and you require safety equipment, that cannot be, that cannot be overlooked, that cannot be forgiven. So I'm always looking at tools and I'm looking at safety gear. That's the starting point, not to say that that's exclusively all I'm looking at. So um, the great thing with Weddell was that the owner had already pulled off a lot of his equipment that was on board the boat. So we had somewhat of a blank slate, but there were some things which um, were, were, were on the boat. So what do we do with those first? It's a bit tricky when you get to a new boat and you know do you just take everything off and completely start again? I can see how that might be beneficial. Um, or do you just go with what's on board the boat? When either those two kind of courses of action, on the one side, you may overlook something that's really super important for that boat because you're just the new brush sweeps clean as so often in kind of HR and management situations a new boss or a new supervisor or what have you just wipes everything clean and then you know we'll, we'll start from here and then you're just constantly like reinventing the wheel all the time I know that we shouldn't get stagnated but there are constant drive towards progress and a constant drive towards making everything new all the time um, can lead to um, bits of received wisdom and bits of received um, understanding uh, being lost so we'd always go for if we can a, a systems-based approach to this kind of question which is what do we know that we need um, and and what is it that we're going to be doing and how we're going to be doing it should be systems-based so that there are there are inventories of what you're going to need there are checklists for what you're going to do before you're setting off um, and then with those in hand then you can add to that anything which you personally uh, idiosyncratically or, or the boat idiosyncratically requires so rather than just binning everything that was left on the boat we went through it all very carefully and we did find some unusual little bits and bobs which really only showed their worth later on. So 
I'll give you a quick for instance. Inside what constituted the remainders of the rigging equipment, there was a piece of a welding rod which had a very tight turn bent into the end of it. And it just looks like a piece of wire, really. But if you've done enough rigging jobs, you realize that what someone's done is create a little hook, which is there so that if you're dropping a mouse line down the mast to rerun a halyard, the mount, you know, these masts are quite big. They're like they're 12 inches across the cord, and they're probably 15 or 16 inches in the length of the cord. I.e., that they're a foot wide and and slightly more than a foot from front to back. And so when you drop a line down from say a spinnaker halyard or a jib halyard, it's going to be at the front of the mast. But then the exit hole for the halyard is on the side of the mast. So you could be seven or eight inches away from where this um, dropped piece of, uh, of, of string with a bit of chain on the end. Where that's lying now inside the mast, you need a little tool to go in and get it. And yes, I had brought a rigging kit. Uh, you know, I brought my own rigging gear across from Challenger, which is part of the story from the last uh, podcast. Of course, we went to Challenger and picked up all this equipment. But I hadn't exactly picked up that little bit. And you do need quite a strong piece of wire to be able to push aside the other um, halyards which are there and kind of get at this new little thing that you've dropped inside the mast. So that little piece of wire, whilst it looks like nothing, is actually, oh, that's kind of a, a useful useful tool there. We'll keep that to one side. Otherwise, what am I going to be using Am I buying welding rods to take on the boat with me? No, I've, I've got rolls of mono stainless steel wire, which I'm using for, for mousings on shackles sometimes, but um, it's too soft to do that job. So recognizing there's little things like that. There was also very specific things, like there was um, a panel lifter, which is that little kind of handle thing with two suction cups on it, um, which you can then, uh, you kind of, pump it up with a little pump on the side and it sucks those two suction points onto a panel then you can lift off the panel. Um, quite a few of the floorboards and the engine covers indeed on that boat require a panel lifter otherwise you're trying to get a screwdriver down the side of them you're trying to mess around so um, would I have thought to have brought a panel lifter with me? Not really it's not required on other boats but there it is sitting in the gear. It was kind of dirty it was kind of messy it wasn't uh, the most forefront piece of equipment but it's there and you kind of realize yeah if I just binned all this stuff I would have missed out on these details and there are some others along the way there are some gaps as well there's some gaps like even as we went along uh, on this trip I had not taken any um, Teflon tape with me plumber's tape with me which was really required so it's like my own checklist needs to be updated to have those things involved so um, it was a delicate process to go through what little was left on the boat, recognize if any of it was idiosyncratic to that boat, and then uh, refer back to my own inventories and checklists and safety uh, operating procedures and start to add into the situation. So what's, what's the takeaway from this? The takeaway from this is that a lot of what happens on a boat is actually very standardized stuff. You're going to need screwdrivers. You're going to need a set of wrenches. You're going to need uh, horseshoe life buoys. You're going to need you know life jackets, all that kind of stuff. And then there's going to be some things that you idiosyncratically like, and then there's going to be some things that the boat idiosyncratically requires. And uh, getting a clear understanding of that right at the beginning of the uh, project was was absolutely crucial. And that's what we basically spent the first uh, couple of days doing um, there in Brest. As we then set off to sea, you start to get that feeling which you've always got when you set off to uh, a big a crossing or any, or any kind of crossing, really. Um, you realize, like, okay, everything that I have on the boat that's all I've got and uh, that was something I was very aware of as we were fueling up the boat just ready to depart the dock 
um, Xavier came back with a spare uh, or extra gas cylinder which he had bought, uh, uh, one about um, eight kilos, something like that, sort of 20 pound uh, uh, gas cylinder. We had mooted the fact that we may need this, um, that the one that we had might not have enough gas in it. Obviously that's something I couldn't take a risk on, but it'd be kind of like buffeted down the list until it almost been forgotten about. So as we're filling up, poor old Xavier is at the um, gas station trying to, to get one of those. Um, but I'd also asked him to get some jump cables at the same time for jump starting between batteries and engines. And, um, and we didn't have those. Uh, he hadn't been able to find those. So as I'm departing the dock, I'm going through a mental inventory of what's everything that was on the boat when I got here and have we kept the best of it? Um, have I brought on board all the things I need? Do I have all the tools I need? Do I have all the safety gear I need? Do I have those things that I like to have on a boat? Um, trying to inventory everything. What What is it that I said we needed then we didn't get? What jobs do I have to do and what order do they need to be in? That uh, the first probably hour for me is just going through the inventory very, very carefully of what's on board. And I mean this, you know, kind of in my mind rather than going through all the bags, although that would have been acceptable as well. And just making sure because to turn around uh, and go back for something which you suddenly realize is critical is uh, a far wiser move than um, just setting off like, oh, well, you know, it'll, it'll be all right because that's just your first red flag is hoisted and you've only just left the dock and too many of those little red flags in a line and you've got a problem. So as we departed from Brest, we were very lucky that it was very, very light conditions. We motored for the, probably the first three or four hours. And um, from my point of view as a, a skipper, I'm just going through um, everything that I need to do. Now, this was a non-commercial uh, operation for Spartan. It wasn't part of our normal uh, charter uh, schedule. We are just picking up the boat and the people that came with me didn't pay to be there. Um, they're just there as, as friends and uh, acquaintances who are jumping onto the boat to, to help me deliver it back. So I'm also thinking about, okay, what um, safety uh, lectures I've already done to them. And we did do a whole uh, day of safety training before we left, which is, uh, you know, I, I can't degrade what it is that I normally do, which is three days of training. I can't degrade that into nothing. So my compromise is to do eight hours of training for people. But um, if you've done deliveries and you've done quick moves on boats before, um, I'm not sure how many skippers are doing eight hours of tuition before people leave. But you know what's in that? We're looking at all the safety gear on deck, all the safety gear at the back of the boat, the life rafts, the VHF, the chart plotters, uh, moving around inside the boat, the galley setup, how we're going to be keeping things safe in there, um, looking at the sails, the jammers, the winches, the grinders, so that people coming onto the boat have a, a basic, at least, awareness. You know, uh, When we do those three days of training, I always say to people at the beginning, um, you're only going to remember like 10% of this. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, come and ask me, of course but I should be continuing to repeat all the same information throughout the entire voyage, right? Almost right down to the last day, we're still discussing things. Um, and for me departing from Brest, I'm thinking, okay, have I given them all the critical information? Do we have all the critical safety gear? Do we have the tools to sort things out? And then starting to think of that, um, I guess kind of like body of information which I have behind me, which is experience and which is um, which is getting it wrong a thousand times in the past and thinking, is there anything about this scenario which you know has any of the hallmarks of any of those times that's gone wrong in the past? And the great thing was, as I set off from uh, Brest with uh, with seven uh, crew, you know, eight of us in total, I couldn't really find any holes in the plan, which was uh, kind of amazing. 
uh, based on the only seven days that we had. We saw the boat and then we kind of had a day away from the boat and then the next day the boat arrived at the dock and that's when we did the deal and we jumped on board and so really we had five days to get this boat ready. So I knew that the boat was very, very good underneath everything because I've raced against it so many times. Um, you know, Fastnet, Caribbean 600, Heineken. I've, I've, uh, I've lost to her so many times that I know that she can uh, do everything she needs to do at sea. It's just I wanted to make sure that I wasn't the the weak link that I'd missed a uh, missed a step in it. So first uh, first day, first night, from my point of view, obviously the crew themselves are. Uh, it's a new experience for some of them. They never set off across the Atlantic. Many of them had gone sailing many times before, but crossing the Atlantic was a whole new thing. And there's a there's a trepidation in that because um, you know. <laughs> I guess from my point of view, I see it as, you know, if you can sail upwind and down in fair weather and foul, then you can kind of sail around the world. It's not an issue. You just have to keep um, st stitching those days together and then you, you add up to whatever's required to do the job you need to do. But, you know, for those for whom it was a new thing, the idea of crossing 2,000 miles of open water was uh, something they were kind of getting their heads around. So the responsibility of the captain at that time, whilst on the one side, I'm checking my internal uh, yeah, inventories and my internal kind of plan of how this all goes and checking the actual physical checklist I had with me. Um, I'm also talking to the crew and, um, and, and building confidence in them, both that they're, you know, building confidence in me, building confidence in the boat, building confidence in the weather, building confidence in our ability to overcome problems building their confidence in the amount that they know, which might be very, very little, almost nothing, but that's okay as long as they stay safe, or, or building their confidence that, um, you know, if they've had difficult uh, sailing experiences in the past, that it's not gonna be repeated. This is the, all these are the responsibility of the, of the skipper. Um, and you can end up with uh, skippers who are kind of divorced from the process, who get a little bit too, um, used to leaving port on these big journeys and they kind of forget about the way the crew are feeling about things and that can that can bubble and fester and be in the background if you're not careful with people um, starting to express high levels of anxiety three or four days into the trip and you're thinking where's this come from well of course where it came from was um, from things that were not said and not broached and not covered um, at the beginning of the trip so the first night uh, was completely uneventful don't worry I'm not going to take you through it like blow by blow for every night it was I could say as an overall it was quite a long slow um, delivery that Brest is on the like most westerly tip of, uh, of France kind of where it is right beneath the UK sticking out into the English Channel and so there was no like big geographical um, obstacles that we had to get around we just needed to set ourselves up for the weather pattern that was ahead of us and don't go directly north because you'd crash into the UK but you know we're heading obviously uh, to the west and somewhat to the north um, departing from the UK and heading out towards uh, North America you have to make sure first that your chart plotter or whatever it is you're using for your navigation whether it be paper charts or, or some other electronic aid um, is set up to do great circle navigation so um, if you haven't come across this before we talk about the rum line and, and the fastest way between two points is uh, the rum line um, and that's r-h-u-m-b as opposed to r-u-m-b or r-u-m <laughs> the um the rum line is what would be a straight line on a paper chart. So a paper chart, of course, is a projection of the geographical, rep uh, a geographical representation, 
No, hang on, let me get this right. It's a paper representation of a spherical geography. That's better. Okay, so it's a, it is a, a failed and, and, and flawed system um, for trying to make a globe uh, flatten out onto your onto your chart uh, onto your onto your uh, chart table. As many people will know, the Mercator projection is one that's primarily used uh, for modern navigation. It does have some uh, political. Uh, polit it's somewhat politicized because certainly the Mercator projection makes um, countries in Northern Europe look um, really big compared to countries which they have historically had control over, particularly Africa. Um, and so there was there was definitely a political kind of bias towards why that um, that particular projection was used. There are others available, but on a normal standard Mercator projection, which is the kind of one you'll see on any uh, CMAP or Navionics type uh, chart, the uh, the straight line on the chart would actually be a curve if you were to draw it on a globe, or it is a curved course in relation to the clearly spherical uh, world. So um, we need to make sure that our chart plotter is set to a great circle route. So the equator is a great circle. It absolutely bisects our world into two halves. And any line of uh, longitude is also a great circle. It if you take any line of a longitude, slice the planet in half, you're going to get two halves. But 10 degrees north, 10 degrees south, lines of latitude, if you were to cut the planet uh, into two parts along any of those lines, it would not be uh, in two halves. So what we have to do to find the shortest route between two points, like between Brest in France and uh, Lüneburg here in Nova Scotia, is we have to find the route which represents a great circle route, that if we were to take our... Uh, uh, line and then split the world in half using that the two halves would be equal that is the definition of the shortest distance now on a uh, Mercator projection chart a great circle route will appear as a curved route so as we set off from France if we were to look at the um, look at the chart look at the chart plotter and say oh we're going to drive over to uh, North America and let's let's uh, say to Nova Scotia um, what's the the quickest way of getting there It'd be all too easy to kind of layer a ruler or something out and draw along that and that's that's it now that would mean that you have a constant bearing and you just uh, set the compass and off you go nice and easy great circle routes uh, a bit more complex because again if you're going to show that on a chart it would be a curve well how do you work out what the curve is now if you go back not too long really used to have now what was it called it was from the Admiralty in the UK and it was something like great circle routes for mariners or I can't remember the code now there used to be a book they're all blue books they're always on the on the uh, top shelf of the of, above the chart table you'd have MP 100 which was all of like information and details for mariners it's what you invariably end up reading for the zillionth time when you're on anchor watch and then the one next to it on the on the bookshelf I'm thinking of is this like international routes for ships or whatever it was and what it would uh, do is it would set up a series of waypoints you could put them into your charting system or put them on your chart and um, by setting up the waypoints it would define a an arc crossing a large open stretch of water and then you would then just use your bearings to go between point to point to point between the waypoints so although you're still using compass uh, to, to find your way uh, across the Atlantic you're using it to find um, the shortest 
uh, route because you've been given the information you need to set up waypoints. The benefit with the new GPS system, of course, is that it just gives you the great circle route because the satellites that are running the GPS system just see is a giant turning rock and they're up above it and they're just saying, oh, you want to go from here on this big lump of rock to this other place on this lump of rock? This is the quickest route for you. So um, in terms of setting a course, I guess there's something that's to be said there. The the classic now how do we how do we discuss this i do not want to kind of like <laughs> create controversy here but i will say that i am um i'm a, I'm a big fan of modern electronic uh navigation and i think i'm a realist when it comes to using uh previous forms of navigation i.e you know charts and and uh, sextants and all that kind of stuff i'm realistic because I hope that by now I understand both the positives and the negatives of, of both kinds of systems. There is, I know, a big move, um, particularly in, in the cruising world, to enjoy and benefit from the skill set of, of doing a celestial nav and for getting things on a paper chart. There are huge benefits to using paper charts alongside electronic navigation, not least that an even intermittent uh, electrical fault can um, mean that all information you have kind of just disappears off your screen and then all of your history is, is lost and, and all of your um, latest uh, data is lost. I do not put my... Um, I do not put my uh, 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 paper cross on my chart every, uh, every hour. Um, I have instead uh, focused in on the log uh, the log is something which legally we have to keep and if you're a commercial seafarer there are a set number of things that must be in the log when people join the boat when people leave the boat when people are injured all sorts of uh, issues that must legally go into the log um, I have focused in on making my log entries as detailed as possible and uh, I actually on this uh, voyage designed a new uh, log book and I think there's 30 points that you check every every hour for us now some of that is based on the fact that we've got big boats we've got people who are new to the boats and i'm trying to develop their understanding and their awareness and you know as i'm walking around the boat i'm always smelling to see if i can smell oil or smell diesel or smell electrical burning or you know i'm smelling but people might not think of that unless it literally says in the log book um, any strange smells you know um, I'm naturally listening for the swish of water in the uh, in the bilges but um, if you're not used to that you would need to have a logbook that says you need to go and check the bilges all this kind of stuff so what I would naturally be assessing for I've decanted into a kind of pro forma log thing which I'm um, going to be doing a couple of things with firstly using and we're going to be printing it and then uh, selling it as well as in the merch shop so the the thing with it is it, it ends up being 30 points and those 30 points one of them is uh, your, your GPS position one of them is your EPE which is your your estimated position error which I always write right next to my uh, GPS position there have been unfortunately some uh, issues where people have um, well, had serious accidents and deaths uh, uh, because uh, GPS was out and people didn't realize that the GPS was out at that time. But the modern system does allow us to also know what's the error in the GPS position. So if we have those two bits of information together, brilliant. It's it's saved, it's secured every hour. Uh, all the weather information, all of the checks on every element of the boat, the visibility, the wind direction, the yada 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 lots and lots of things you can imagine so i i invest in that when i am uh, crossing an ocean putting a a, a little um, cross on a chart 
kind of does the same thing. I totally understand it. I have no problem with it. But um, the kind of scale charts that are going to be useful, there's there's like nothing to hit in the middle of the Atlantic. So there's not going to be a critical situation where suddenly I need to know where my last GPS position was. The other thing as well is that the the, the vessels which I'm working on are going above 10 knots all the time, like maybe a little bit below, or certainly if we're like doing deliveries and doing, you know, training exercises, we're going a little bit below, but most of the time we're going pretty quickly. And knowing that I was at this point uh, 50 minutes ago is almost of no, no use whatsoever. Um, I think different boats, different situations, um, it's, it's very, very good to get it onto the chart. My experience is just that it ends up being a massive distraction for the watch leaders who are trying to do this as well as the log and I put a lot more value by the log um, and that the charts themselves just end up getting soaked by wet cuffs and, and all the rest of it. You remember we're in a race situation, this is not like cushions and, and wood and, and, and cups of tea. It's uh, it's pretty, pretty basic inside these boats. So um, my experience with with navigation is based uh, kind of hard one on what's the exact things that we need to have which are most useful if you know a set series of things start to go wrong and for that the the log is something so i i try and stay as aware as i can of um of what's going on uh throughout the boat the crew are checking what's going on throughout the boat and we focus our uh our time as much as we can on making sure that the uh, the, the details of the log stay up to date um, and then electronic uh, positioning systems like GPS are what we primarily rely on. And the thing I'd say with that is also that, you know, when I first did my commercial qualifications in uh, the early 2000s, if a ship wanted to have um, an electronic charting system uh, only, no paper charts, then they would have to have two independent power supplies, two independent databases, and two independent antennas so that one can back up the other. Uh, you can do that now with an iPhone and an iPad. And I, I have to say, I hope this isn't too apparent to uh, too many listeners, but um, I basically navigated back across the Atlantic on an iPhone phone and an iPad. Now, just before <laughs> just before you write in, we did also have the chart plotter running. We did also have the log running. And we did also have, uh, when I say the chart plotter was running, there's probably three separate chart plotter systems running, each of which is recording our uh, GPS at any particular point, although only two of them actually had the uh, chart card in, which gives us the detailed information. But again, we're offshore in the middle of the Atlantic there's not that much detail to add to the middle of the Atlantic apart from depths, which are not that important to us. So we had three more kind of traditional systems backing us up, plus a paper-based system in the log. Um, but I, I used my phone and my uh, iPad quite a bit on this one. And it was very good, actually. It was um, everything like that should always be taken as being an aid to navigation. Um, at the end of the day, what is navigation is a very complicated uh, a question I, because navigation in the end is just keeping the vessel safe so if you have a constant lookout at the front of the vessel um, you can just drive around doing whatever it is you want as long as you don't hit rocks as long as you don't hit another ship um, or lose somebody over the side or something as long as you don't have an emergency situation that's a totally acceptable method way of doing things the problem comes in if you if anything happens outside of that situation you're totally screwed. If, you, if you're not on top of what's going on, you can end up in a pickle very quickly if anything steps outside of that, uh, the circle of what is normal. Um, 
if you suddenly have uh, yeah, a man overboard and you're trying to transmit information, if your uh, VHF transmission does not go to a vessel which is able to receive your encoded um, AIS message, um, if you're trying to give information to people verbally and you don't have your uh, GPS position to hand, how can they possibly know where you are triangulating you know your signal or something like it's basically impossible um it the the danger with electronic navigation systems comes in i guess a couple of different shades number one if you hit something because you're relying too much on the information which is inside the uh electronic system and you then run yourself up on rocks putting the vessel or the crew in grave and imminent danger um, or if you hit another another uh, vessel putting your own crew and the other crew into grave and imminent danger so uh, as long as you avoid all those things basically you are safe then the next layer down is are we getting where we want to go like are we getting there quickly we need to know where we are to give ourselves uh, some relevance to the to the weather and to you know maybe political situations you know, don't go in these waters to stay away from there whatever it is but you need to know where you are then it comes to okay if i have a problem What's going to be the nature of the problem? Now, if I have a problem where all the electronics on the vessel turn off, I think that is a very, very unlikely situation. People say, well, what if you hit by lightning? Well, I've been hit by lightning quite a few times. Not all of the inf instruments have gone off. And the thing that's also happened is that um, GPS and um, iPhone type uh, devices, which are inside pallet cases and uh, separated uh, away from uh, the structure of the vessel and are turned off, I've never had any problem with them turning back on. So that is not a full Faraday cage to put something inside a, uh, a, a pelly case. But if it's not anywhere near the chain plates, it's not anywhere near any structural part of the boat, I, I can only report that I've never had an issue with it. So the likelihood of everything switching off on the boat, all of the things which have their own power supplies, everything turning, that's, it's basically zero. So then the next uh, issue that could happen is that GPS like gets turned off. Well, there was a time in the 90s and the 2000s when GPS was coming in, which if you got too close to uh, US um, uh, fleet activities, naval fleet activities, the uh, accuracy of the GPS dropped massively. And you can imagine that uh, the, as, the, as GPS is used by so many um, uh, missile systems and, uh, and uh, like phalanx type systems, which are working out uh, uh, the, 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 the speed and the, the information about incoming missiles, incoming uh, uh, ordnance, and then, and then blowing it up. Um, if that ordnance, if that missile does not have a strong GPS signal and it's kind of seeking for the vessel, it gives those uh, onboard systems a lot more time to react and, and to uh, the ship itself more chance of slipping away from the, uh, the incoming uh, uh, threat. So what the US fleet used to do was to basically turn down the accuracy of GPS within quite a, a few miles around their fleet. So you did kind of have that experience back in the day. I don't think they do that anymore. And it was how many was it like 17 years or something ago that they turned up the accuracy on GPS. So even civilian GPS systems were accurate within you know just a few few meters. So the the chance of them turning that off now when even like my fridge knows where it is and my you know everything I own knows exactly where it is based on GPS. The likelihood of them turning that off is just zero. But even if they did, there are other systems in place now which would would back it up as long as it's uh, activated on your on your device. So 
The kind of errors that we're more likely to get into are temporary power outs on the boat where you know, you've kept the, I know the parallel between the engine and the, uh, and the service load is uh, open and, uh, or rather is, is connected and then all your batteries have gone flat and there's gonna be some like vessel level incident which is gonna create a problem. So it's like, okay, well, is traditional navigation going to save me in that situation? Now I should at this juncture add the fact that of course you can do DR navigation, dead wrecking navigation, just using your compass and even if you've lost all equipment, all electronic equipment on board the boat, you could still drop a little bit of wood or an apple core or something over the bow and then time how long it takes to get down the side of the boat. So you'd have a very crude, very basic idea of where you are. DR navigation can really be uh, very strong, but you need to have experience doing it. You need to know your boat. You need to know details of the oceanic currents or tides that you're in. You need to have a lot of information, but um, you need to be just as good at doing DR for it to be a useful piece of navigation as you are good at using your electronic aids or as you are at doing your uh, astronav. The key though is that that's only gonna last for a little while. That's your stop gap that's gonna keep you going. It's gonna take you uh, off course very, very quickly if you're in some area where you're not plotting the leeway correctly, you don't understand your boat, you're in a current, something like that. So the question is, how do you get back to accurate nav? Um, that's a bigger question. Well, if I'm in the middle of the Atlantic and I've been diligently putting a little cross on a chart and then all my power goes off on my boat, am I then helped by that cross on that chart on a vessel going at 10 knots or even a vessel going at five knots? Um, not really is the answer. So if, if the situation persists and you really don't have uh, any other information coming onto the boat, everything electronic is just turned off. At what point does traditional navigation become beneficial? Um, about 24 hours later, because the actual schedule that a proper navigator follows, um, realistically, you're gonna have to dig out your sextant, you're gonna have to dig out your almanac, you're gonna have to dig out all of your uh, correction tables. Then you're gonna have to probably, um, oh, you're gonna have to have that little uh, sheet for drawing it all down on so you can do your uh, do your actual plot. You're gonna need also, what else? You're gonna need to get your calculator out because obviously all your electronics have gone off so you can't use your phone or you're gonna be using long division, long multiplication, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, <laughs> go. I think that we all think we can do it. We all think we can probably do 10 pull-ups. Go and do it, prove it to me you can, that you can actually do maths like that. So you've got to get all those things back fired up. And then you've got to get, you've got to jump into some kind of navigator's uh, schedule, which a normal one would be that you may or may not be getting moon sights during the night. You may or may not be able to have a visible horizon where it's possible with some brighter stars, you might be able to get something. But more likely at dawn, you're going to be out there getting fixes, um, getting your seven or eight stars and starting to drive your first um, first uh, uh, input on the chart. And then at the middle of the morning, you're gonna be doing your uh, running fix. And then at the midday, you're gonna be doing your sun sight. And then in the afternoon, you're gonna be doing another running fix and crossing that with the one from the morning. And then in the evening, you're gonna be getting another set of stars, not different entirely, but there might be some slight slight alterations as things are visible and not visible. You'll be identifying all those. You'll be getting yourself set up and then going out and doing your sights. And then again, if there's anything you can do during the night to further back that up, then between all of that, you may have enough information over one day to get yourself um, to get yourself into a position where you know where you are within, say, 10 miles. 
okay so I would say 24 hours before you actually can say within 10 miles I know where we are if indeed you've actually got all the equipment on board if indeed you remember how to do it all and if indeed you you ever knew how to do it now the alternative is it's extremely unlikely that all GPS everywhere has been turned off so phones uh, iPads and I would remind you that only iPads that have sim cards have onboard GPS it will know where it is when you're in your normal life because it's using Wi-Fi to work out where it is but only iPads that have um, only iPads that have sim cards in them they can do data uh, transference actually have GPS that work at sea so you've got your iPad you've got your iPhone you've got your chart plotter um, what else could you have would you have a handheld GPS like like somehow a handheld GPS is better well the only way that a handheld GPS is better is if you have a supply of batteries that you can shove into it and then it can keep running but if you have a way of charging an iPhone if you have a big storage battery if you have any power left on the boat at all if you have a solar charger any of that and you can get your phone working again well you may as well just use your phone right so on board the phone can be a set full set of Admiralty charts you can have Navionics downloaded for your area, and as long as you have downloaded the charts to your phone, um, you've got very accurate charts, and if you haven't downloaded them to the phone, then you've got the kind of Legoland navigation, you know roughly where you are, but do be careful because they don't put in even dots for islands, they can miss out quite large islands. But if you're in the middle of the Atlantic as we were, um, what is the best direction to go down to keep me safe? Um, as I depart from Brest, as I start looking at things, I'm thinking about tools, I'm thinking about safety gear, I'm thinking about navigation. Um, I just try and have as many different things as possible. And uh, what I do have on my phone is I have an app on my phone which will do, um, I have two. One of them is, a um, it makes the phone into uh, an angle, uh, indicator uh, uh, an inclinometer um, and it can do very basic uh, uh, star elevations which sounds crazy do, how, how on earth could you do that on a phone well it keeps its own level it knows where level is and then you just sight along the edge of the phone and you can do something to get some kind of idea of where uh, a star is and then the app on board the phone does it has all of the almanacs it has everything it does all the multiplication so I think of all the errors that could happen when I'm doing a star fix it starts with I might have the wrong star I might get completely the wrong um, measurement on the on the sextant I might not know the error on the sextant I might incorrectly um, guess my height above the water I might uh, make a timing error the clock could be wrong that I'm doing this on like all sorts of things could go wrong remember if all your powers off then are your watches accurate is your phone giving you the correct time or not time or the ship's clock or if you're not fully wicked up on how to do astronav you better to just have a lot of iPhones all with Navionics on them and then in the event of getting struck by lightning or rolled or whatever make sure that they're waterproof they're in waterproof cases and then go with that so um, in terms of great circle navigation heading out across the Atlantic um, I had a, a constellation of, of different things which I'm navigating on but the one I had in my hand up on the deck most of the time was my phone and I kind of hated myself for it because I'm still doing that thing where you you, know, you pull out your phone and you look at your phone um, but it was um, it it was very accurate I gotta say I'll have a look at that and every hour I go down and you know check the check the, the, the chart on the chart plotter and um, had had no real issues with that so um, the the first couple of days we were heading out like a, a pretty steep quite northerly course like we were only ended up like a hundred miles off the south coast of, uh, of Ireland and that was uh, 
it was a choice on my behalf. There was a, there's an opportunity to go like to the southwest, which I guess theoretically there's a, a great circle route that goes that way. Is that true? No, I don't think there is actually. <laughs> I think you've got one choice really as you leave Europe and go the other way uh, as, and, and cross over the Atlantic is that you're, you're going to be going to the north. Um, how far to the north was then uh, given to me by the... Um, weather information that we were downloading. So there's a number of different ways that we use on boats to get uh, weather information onto the boat. Um, and the, the communication systems that we use, actually a lot of them rely on mobile phones. Like phones now almost shouldn't be called phones. I feel like the word phone has just changed its meaning and rather than meaning a, a, a device that you pick up and talk to somebody else, what a phone really is now is it's a, a personal tertiary um, cybernetic device you know it's it allows us to connect to this world of information this world of computation and calculation which is far beyond our our, our, our own personal abilities um, and and that the phone whatever we want to call it that that personal cybernetic device um, allows me to do that so yes I'm doing navigation on Navionics on my phone and then I'm also using we had a Garmin Enreach, which if you haven't come across these, they're absolutely fantastic little device, about uh, 450 US dollars worth, and then a, 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 a monthly subscription, which can be on the, the low end if you don't use it very much, or on the, the higher end, it's like $80 a month or something for unlimited data. It's doing tracking all the time, which gives people a sure uh, a page that they can go to online and see exactly where the boat is. It's doing um, speed and position and all the kind of things you'd expect from a basic GPS position. But then the main kind of grit of what the uh, inReach is about is its communication abilities. So I operate the Garmin inReach through an app on my phone called EarthMate. And EarthMate gives me the ability to then see uh, where I am um, and to send and receive uh, text messages and to uh, receive weather messages. That's the thing that I was using primarily. It has another function which is able to send SOS uh, distress uh, signals. So when you press that, when you kind of uncover the button and press and hold that button and it starts to send an SOS, it will send firstly uh, a pre-recorded um, message to somebody ashore which will give them an idea of you know what's going on and where you are but it also sends it to um, the appropriate uh, rescue authority which uh, if you're on the land it's going to be getting someone like the, the park ranger or the police or the fire brigade um, if you're at sea then it's going to connect with maritime rescue services so we didn't need that which is excellent but it, it is good that it's there it's kind of like a like a having another epub on board the boat so the garmin inreach device you can uh operate it through the uh, interface on the actual device. It's about the size of a sort of stocky, stocky mobile phone. Um, but it just tends to sit in the corner on charge in an area where it's able to communicate with the satellites and then I operate it through my phone and that gives me the ability to say to communicate with people via text just going at the old uh, 160 characters per message um, or to, uh, to, to, to get down weather information. Um, it's text based, it's not um, super fancy but it's um, able to give me a pretty good indicator of wind speeds, directions, wave heights, visibility, all that kind of stuff, far beyond um, anything I could glean from, from just looking around me. Uh, on top of that, what we normally use is the um, uh, Iridium Go. Uh, it's got a bit of a funny name. You'll see it was written as uh, a Go with an exclamation point after it, but it's this brilliant device. It's about the size of like 
uh, to, we, we used to say like packet of cigarettes, right? So it's, it's like uh, like two packets of cigarettes, not very big, little flip up antenna on one side of it, USB connection for the power. And that thing is amazing. It, again, I can do uh, text messaging through it, uh, through my phone. So I, again, it's another app on my phone that connects with this device. I can do emailing with it. I can send photos with it. I can actually send um, podcast files, which are not very big. If I want to send a, a voice file, um, you can do uh, tracking with it. You can send your SOS stuff. You can get Gribs down and download that to your phone through another app we're going to talk about, um, Predict Wind. Um, so between the InReach, which is like 500 bucks, and the Iridium Go, which is, I think they're down to like 800 bucks now, um, and your and your phone, you have a system where you can stand on the deck of a boat at at the back or whilst you're driving or whatever. I can text somebody, I can call somebody, I can take a picture and send the picture. Um, I can see exactly where I am. I can see the weather, and if I need to on either system, I can uh, I can connect and um, send an SOS message. Um, with the Navionics that's on my phone, I'm able to connect to the, the boat's uh, uh, sensor system, which has got obviously radar and hull sensors and speed sensors and wind sensors. I can see those all on my phone as well. So through this device, which I have in my hand, um, I have access to all this information. Now, I would say it like that. It's information. It's not knowledge. It's knowledge when it's combined with my experience and with other pieces of information to, to clarify what's going on. But between my logbook which is recording all of this information and what I have to hand, I have a very good idea of what's going on around me. And we all know the, the very sad statistics around um, how, how many times people pick up their phones. I say use that to your advantage. If you're constantly looking at the chart, if you're constantly looking at the weather, if you're constantly in communication, I, really, you know, I realize some people do not want to be in communication with folks, but we're working in a kind of more commercial setup um, that those three bits of equipment, the Iridium Go, the Garmin InReach and my phone allowed probably five people on the boat to stay in contact with loved ones and organize flights and do whatever else they wanted to do. And two other people on the boat also had their own Garmin InReach, which again alone is a, a GPS device and an SOS device and a communications device even without the phones. So electronic navigation, electronic safety systems now create a a safety net which we can use as long as we always bear in the mind that it's an aid to safety that it's an aid to navigation at the end of the day um, making sure the boat doesn't hit anything proceeding at a safe speed looking after your crew physically and emotionally those are the most important things having the tools on board the boat having the safety equipment on board the boat is very good but there's a lot of benefits from this uh, modern um, modern technology which uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, overlooked um, we we operate and play in a very dangerous environment uh, when we go out onto the ocean the more that we have to make it safe then the more enjoyable it can be so um off we set on on Weddell and uh and and everything was going kind of groovy it was uh it was good we did have a couple of issues which um started out as problematic uh there were things that i dealt with that the crew didn't really have to get themselves involved in but um it required some uh effort on my behalf to to get through those problems the first of them was the fuel transfer pump tiny little component within the um within the overall complexity of the boat but uh it, it um it created quite a few issues for us so the situation on that boat is that we have a port fuel tank, starboard fuel tank, and an aft fuel tank in the Lazarette. And between those, we've got about 550 liters of fuel. 
uh, above the main engine, to slightly to the aft of the compartment, is a 35-litre day tank. Um, and again, if you have a look on uh, YouTube, there's a, a video there now, which is an introductory tour to Weddle, and you can see all this stuff in, in real time, see how the setup goes. But um, it has a fuel pump which moves the fuel up to the day tank. Now, having a day tank is great because it allows you to work out exactly how much fuel you've used, which then obviously is the precursor to knowing how much fuel you've got left, as long as you knew what the capacity of your tanks was originally and, and how full or empty they were. So I don't want to get too bogged down now in the details of day tanks, but we can basically see that there is a very necessary pump which is moving the fuel from where it's stored to the, the point close to the engine where it's then uh, used by the engine. And uh, the problem is with that kind of uh, pump, uh, or certainly the one that was on board the, the boat when we set off, is that it's a centrifugal pump. So it has a vein with straight fins inside it that spins round and uh, fuel which is entering into the pump is uh, entering closer to the center of the rotating uh, fan or the rotating vane set on the bottom of the pump and then because of centrifugal force it's flung out to the outer edge of the housing that the vane is in and exits through the body of the pump and off on its journey. Now the good thing with centrifugal pumps is that they can move um, fluids at very high rates. The problem is they don't prime themselves so anything anytime you've got a situation where you have a pump which is going to need to prime it Itself, you don't use a centrifugal pump or if you do you have some kind of redundancy system built in where the pump itself um, can be primed by some other method so when I've had uh, fuel transfer systems on boats previously yes we take advantage of the fact that centrifugal pumps are very quick um, they are specifically designed for moving fuel with sheltered uh, ignition systems there's no sparks um, but we also have them normally backed up by some kind of whale gusher pump or Henderson pump which is a bellows type pump like a bilge pump that you can then um, manually suck the fuel from the tank along potentially empty uh, fuel pipes and get it into the pump for the pump to then send it onto the tank or if you're in a situation where your electronics have failed you've been upside down or something's going terribly wrong inside the engine bay something's wet something's fused you can just pump the fuel through the pump um, using your uh, secondary redundant uh, gusher pump Weddell didn't have any of this so we had a situation where three feet below the level of the day tank and below the level of the transfer pump the fuel is sitting in the tanks and I cannot get it to go to the fuel tank ready to go into the engine so initially this was uh, a case of uh, look carefully at what's going on and try and work out where is the problem the first thing I could identify was that there was loads of kind of makeshift uh, Lucas style connection remember Lucas the Prince of Darkness uh, the, uh, the, the those little um, crimp on uh, connectors which are so often used when we're trying to do electrical jobs obviously not as good as soldering things not as good as properly waterproofing things but very accessible I do use them myself at times but they can get overused and when you go into a situation on a new boat and you see loads of those little Lucas connectors you know that somebody's been in there with um, with great intent and then you're just hoping that there's not too much of a 
divergence between their uh, their dreams and their powers that they the things that they want to have happened have happened in the way they expected um, there's a lot of sparking loose corroded contacts down in the bottom of um, beautifully uh, added components of equipment on, on many boats I've been on so I saw a lot of Lucas connectors like okay I kind of got an idea here and then I saw that the pipe work which was connecting to the fuel transfer pump had all this weird kind of hair I guess you could describe it as like hair sticking out of all the threads and I realized that whilst I had not bought plumber's tape with me on the boat it seemed that whoever had previously fitted the pump also did not have plumber's tape and had resorted to putting something like twine around the threads which had created enough of a uh, enough of a seal that the, the pump wasn't actively leaking but then when the pump was left the uh, the air would seep into those threads and then the uh, prime on the pump was lost as the fuel ran back to the tank so not to get too into like tiny little details but it went on for a number of days and uh, it, it resorted in me having to do a lot of sucking diesel along the pipes to get them and get the pump primed initially like coming up with this very convoluted uh, complicated method of getting the fuel up to the pump and then the pump sending the required 35 liters to the day tank for a, for a refuel but uh, it, it underlines I guess uh, one of the things you need to really know Yunpo and you need to know where the weaknesses are I said at the beginning that we we set off without jump cables I knew that the jump cables are an issue because I knew that it is possible for things like the engine start battery to go flat and that comes not particularly from knowing this boat it just comes from other situations on other boats but indeed on this boat we discovered that the um, the SSB radio had been connected directly to the uh, engine uh, circuits that the small 12 volt battery was running the um, the SSB system which is very very few, uh, electricity hungry and that if we weren't too careful if the breaker for the engine got left on the SSB would make the engine battery flat you want to know how we worked that out <laughs> well not having an instruction book for the boat we found it out by flattening the engine battery so how do we then jump between um, the the still charged uh, house batteries and the now flat engine battery well it's actually very simple we could just disconnect the leads from the uh, engine battery take one of the house batteries connect the leads onto it, start the engine, quickly disconnect the leads and put them back onto the engine battery. Remember, don't run alternators for too long without um, somewhere for them to send their, load, their, their, their uh, electricity and then reconnect the house batteries so that they could in, also could accept charge from the now charging service alternator. So we could overcome that kind of thing. But when the fuel transfer pump goes down and there's no redundancy, I was lucky later on that I found a, a small stirrup pump which I bought for actually doing the engine uh, oil uh, exchange. We didn't do the engine oil change before we set off, um, but I had bought a small pump so I could do that. And I realized in a you know as you do sometimes just standing there on deck and like oh my god I don't need to suck diesel anymore which is obviously disgusting um, I can just use a stirrup pump to draw fuel up and into the pump and then go from there but without that this very small thing becomes a massive issue so I need to be aware of okay this needs to work it needs to have a backup and that I think is what the shakedown trip is always about for boats so I definitely learned that um, on the way about the fuel transfer pump we had tools to deal with it all we cracked that pump right down into its component parts and then rebuilt it and uh, although it did still have a few issues I'm not quite sure exactly where it's leaking I think the seal on the bottom of the pump where the end plate goes on is not 100% 
percent will replace that but um, we could we could make it work after a couple of days um, the other only other issue really we had on the, the trip was uh, was entirely of my own making and it was one of those ones that builds um, slowly over time the the lazarette if you watch the video that's on YouTube of the of the tour around Weddell you'll see there's a bit towards the end where I'm looking in the lazarette and I'm recalling the fact that there was a massive mess in there while we're at sea and it started with the fact that um, I had asked the crew to, I, I don't like, uh, where did it start? It started from the fact that I don't like um, using dish towels on, on boats. They're hideously dirty and particularly boys are very good at dropping the towel on the floor and then, oh, give the floor a quick wipe and then give the wall a quick wipe and then put it back where you uh, do the the dishes and then next time someone wipes their brow with it then they wash a dish and then it drops on the floor again and round and round and round and round and after just a very short period of time the dishcloth and the sponge next to the sink can end up hideously in, uh, infested with uh, with bacteria, very easily visible under um, black light if you ever get the opportunity to see that. But um, so what I do is I use uh, tissue, make sure that it's a tissue which is able to go into the ocean, no polypropylene in it at all. We don't want those ones which are super strong because they, they contain uh, polypropylene to make them uh, stronger. But if you get just a normal cheap um, kitchen towel, it's very, very easy then to, to wipe the leftover stuff on your plate, wipe it down and throw the piece of paper in the water and then to wash all the dishes and clean everything and dry everything with um, with tissue. You don't want to leave dishes wet, particularly in warm environments because it's a great environment for bacteria to grow. So my experience has been that people will not use um, dirty tissue to clean something, but they'll definitely use a dirty sponge or a dirty towel to clean things. So um, as a further addition to that what i can say is that we use those little um uh little like rectangular sponges with the kind of pan scour on one side uh, just use the cheap ones for doing our dishes and then uh, they if they ever go on the floor uh, they have to be changed out if um, they're in there for more than two or three days and starting to look scuzzy they need to be changed out and at the end of every washing up session they need to have uh, the uh, there needs to be soap introduced into them and then squeezed all through them so that they cannot become a repository for bacteria but if the one is finished and at the end of its life I then cut a big chunk out the corner of it I always cut like a rectangle out the corner of it and then that is still available maybe like under the sink in the bathroom or something so that you can uh, sorry the heads and <laughs> people be freaking out about that but anyway you know that place where the <laughs> the room where the bath is um the uh it's still in there under the sink but it's now very clearly got a big chunk outside of it and it's good for doing on the floors or something like that after it's been there for a little while get rid of it so it gets that second life as a forecoth but if it looks exactly the same as your uh, active sponge i have found that they cross cross positions very easy. The one that's doing the dishes is also doing the floor and the one that used to do the floor is now back doing the dishes. So um, tissue is where it's at. But the rule for me has got to be that the it goes into a compostable bin and goes over the side or it just goes directly over the side. So I obviously I had not communicated this properly to the crew and I wasn't particularly aware of it, but all the tissue was going into the bin and then the bin bags were going double bagged into the lazarette, which is normally pretty secure, pretty safe. Um, it's a big lazarette. You're talking about something that's, you know, 18 foot across and 16 foot long. Um, very, very smooth bottom. So the bags slide around a bit, but they don't move around very much. What I didn't realize is I hadn't specified exactly how to tie up the bags. So they actually had almost no knots in the bag. So suddenly 
you know, you're always sticking your head down and making sure the steering gear is okay and you're once in a while going to look at things, but nothing particularly had set itself, uh, had set off the alarm bells that there was some kind of issue in there. Yeah, maybe had like four or five bags of rubbish in the lazarette. They were likely tied together. It wasn't obvious that they weren't tied. Um, then as we approached the coast of Newfoundland, we started to come onto the Grand Banks. We started to come into much more shallow water and there had been a storm system which had been blowing to the south of us as we approached North America and it was pushing swell up and over the bank, over the Grand Banks and we were getting um, into the first of the weather that was associated with that storm and very early on in the storm we were getting very big waves because we were suddenly into 50, deep water, 50 meters deep water where it had been thousands of meters deep um, from the waves perspective only you know an hour or so before as it had been south of that position so the boat started kicking and bucking and we started getting to the roughest part of the trip i guess the wind speed was probably like 35 knots 38 knots um, the maximum gusts would be uh, 40 45 but we're going upwind at 10 knots so of course it feels like a lot more and then we had these very big seas so i drove the boat for about uh, six or seven hours. I always do that when it's very rough conditions. Uh, great opportunity for me to uh, start singing and do my little uh, variety show act. Um, I do enjoy heavy weather. I don't take it lightly. I'm not singing because it's uh, a time for carefree abandon, but it is a time to show uh, the rest of the crew that this is not a time to worry. I always say to them, you know, if you're feeling nervous, have a look at me. If I don't look nervous, then you don't need to look nervous. And I wouldn't lie to folks, but there is also the element of being the leader, of being the skipper, of being the captain on the boat and needing to show leadership qualities. And so it's sometimes good to be the one driving, um, making sure people in the cockpit are comfortable, where everyone's clipped on, that everything's proceeding as it should, and then be able to monitor the vessel um, very, very intently from the, from the steering position, or at least on deck. So I was driving the boat and we're bouncing up and over these waves. There's some, some footage of it, but of course it always makes it look like it was flat, calm day whenever you take video of uh, rough seas. But um, the boat was probably definitely going up and down by you know, 20, 25 feet. And uh, we were bucking and kicking as we shift along at 10 knots in, in 50 knots apparent. So um, inside the lazarette, <laughs> inside the lazarette, a number of different things had started to come together. Yes, indeed, I like to use tissue instead of dishcloths. That was an element. I had left the breather open on the fuel tank in the back. It's like a big, it's kind of like an outboard motor tank that's been lashed in position, holds 160 liters of fuel. Um, but it does have a little breather on just like an outboard tank would have. And that had been left to crack open from the last refueling. Um, with the bucking and kicking that was going on, the uh, half fuel load in that tank, uh, some of it, just a bit started to squirt out the top and when I say a bit I mean you know like a couple of ounces like 50 mil or something like a tiny amount in this but you know what diesel is like it's just like oil it spreads everywhere and starts to make a problem out of everything the other thing that happened is that on the deck just behind the um uh, the the wheels on that boat there are two little vent lights which are uh, there for basically for like ventilation in the lazarette, although I've never been able to work out why because there's no bunks in there or anything, but um, there's two little port lights in it. Great, they are openable. And the one unfortunately that was on the leeward side was still a crack open. Um, as we got into the heavy seas uh, that had not been closed, as soon as we did the next log and checked in the, um, the lazarette, we immediately found the problem. And the problem was that a wave had gone in through the little port light and then we got some <laughs> some diesel had come out the diesel tank and then a lot of agitated action and not quite closed uh, bags and a lot of tissue in the bags from 
uh, from the fact that we weren't using dishcloths and suddenly <laughs> have a look at the video have a look at YouTube just go, go if you don't want to watch the whole thing it's like 20 odd minutes long I think it might be longer than that um, it's in the last like 10 minutes we're in the Lazaret and it is just like porridge I called it afterwards the porridge cave it was awful and you're still in very heavy seas when we did the Lazaret check to look at the steer, steering gear and realize what was going on there what can you do like I can't put somebody in there to start clearing that up when I did go and clear it with Mike uh, my cousin when we got to Saint-Pierre it was absolutely disgusting and took like four hours to get cleaned up but everything had gone everywhere thank god it didn't make its way too far off so it wasn't over the quadrant but it of course had spread itself all around the fuel tank uh, the bags were blown out everywhere there was a, a kind of um Rubbermaid uh, box in there that had a load of noodles in that had also been knocked over and all the noodles had gone everywhere so you can imagine so that definitely uh, a mistake on my behalf and um, based on a lot of small things building up so uh, having proper storage for the the gear in the lazarette okay put that on the list making sure that the breather on the uh, fuel tank is closed after refueling make sure we do that uh, make sure the crew all know how to tie the bags up securely We've got to do that and we've got to make sure that uh, when tissue is used in the in the galley, it doesn't end up in the bags in the galley, adding to what we're carrying around. But also, of course, if anything breaks uh, in the lazarette when there's water involved, as it might, you don't end up with like paper mache everywhere. So I, I learned things as we went along. But um, other than that, it was uh, it was a pretty easy trip. The, I think the other thing which I'd mention is that I'd been given uh, some intel that there had been a lot of orca uh, attacks. Have you heard about this off the coast of Portugal? I looked into it a bit before I went and when we were leaving from Portugal um, it was right in the area where we were. It was definitely something that I was contemplating. I watched a couple of videos and there were people who had sort of stopped their vessel and then were just watching as orcas just bombarded the bottom of their boat, you know, just driving into the bottom of the boat like it was the SS Essex or something. And um, damaging rudders and doing all sorts of things. I was able to decant a couple of things out of that. Number one, that it seemed to be one pod in one geographic area. So it's like, okay, you know, that was an issue when we were on Longabada delivery plan. It wasn't an issue when we were on Weddell delivery plan. Um, but I also uh, started to question why exactly the advice had been given to stop the boat. Um, at the end of the day, if the, if a, if a, if a, a creature of that size is going to crash into the side of your 35 or 40 foot boat there is a grave and imminent danger to your life you know most modern boats do not have build, proper bilge pumping arrangements they do not have watertight bulkheads if you've got a Beneteau 40.7 and something starts smacking into the rudder stock uh, and rips the rudder stock right out the bottom of the boat you're going to have catastrophic flooding very very quickly and those tiny little bilge pumps that Beneteau puts in place with that little one inch pipe in the wire that ain't going to help you right there's going to be tons and tons remember one inch hole three feet below the waterline lets in uh i've got two and a half thousand gallons an hour so one meter below the waterline 2.5 centimeters ten thousand liters an hour so if a rudder stock blows out um and you've got a, a giant hole that's like six inches across in the back of the boat um <laughs> yeah good luck with that so i'm not sure where the advice was to like sit and let them do it i think it maybe came from people thinking well don't have the propeller turning 
when there's a creature there and the creature might get hurt i totally understand that but they do have like inches and inches of blubber and um, maybe getting a flick from a propeller would ward them off from doing that again um if you can't use your engine okay that's another thing but like for us uh we could just we could start to motor now can we motor faster than a um a, a dirty great big whale coming at us of course not but we must try and at least be somewhat proactive can we beat the water can we you know fishermen in hong kong have like these big plunger things like toilet plungers on long sticks that they sm crash into the water to scare fish into their nets obviously a whale's a lot smarter than a fish and is, is not a fish but um is there something we can do to try and ward them off it would be my kind of uh take on that so i'd already got this loaded into my brain but i wasn't too worried too much because we were setting off from brest which was you know hundreds of miles away from the area in question but i did have this experience we were about five or six hundred miles into the journey i guess we just come slightly north of the south of ireland and we may be like 500 miles west of ireland something like that and uh, there was two whales so i don't know what kind of whales they were um <laughs> the the big sort <laughs> what else did to say i don't know what they were they weren't massive they were like medium-sized giant pelagic creatures you know and um they the thing that was weird is that we were, what were we doing? We were just tootling along about six knots. We can motor at six, seven knots, so we'll sail down to six, seven knots when it's very light breeze. So we were just tootling along at that kind of um, pace. Uh, and these two whales, they were off the starboard beam. They're about, uh, let me get this right, about 50 meters off to starboard, 150 foot away. And the thing that um, surprised me is that they seemed very aware from their body attitude and their angling towards the boat that they were like they were very aware of the boat and they were kind of aimed towards the boat and then one of them started to to come quite quickly to a position where it was clear he was going to pass just in front of the bow not completely like clear of the bow but just in front of the bow like okay so we alter slightly to starboard to open up a little bit more of a gap between us and where this beastie is going and as we did it the other one maintained position and then kept itself sort of always aimed towards the center of the boat as it started to kind of like as the boat started across in front of it it kept angling its body so it was still pointing directly at the boat as its mate went in front i thought man i've seen this before this is like what muggers do this is this is everybody's getting into position for whoever's the next move now of course clearly that could have just been the fact that i um had been listening to all this stuff with the orca attacks and i had it in the front of my mind but i'll tell you what my instinct was strong enough that i immediately went below and uh, engaged the uh, you know started the engine engaged the engine and put it to eight knots and we just went away from that area now i don't know exactly what that was I think we've seen a change in behavior from um, large pelagic animals in that this has happened with these orcas. It's not one or two. Um, there's upwards of 40 of these incidences happening here. It's four zero incidences of orcas attacking boats at the entrance to the Mediterranean there. Um, so I don't know. I don't really know what that was. I've not got some big like, you know, <laughs> piece of intel that I can share with you. Um, I have always had to be aware of uh, whales. I have on one occasion struck a whale in the middle of the open ocean. It seemed to be okay from the way it moved off and we were only doing about eight or nine knots. It was logging on the surface and we basically kind of went aground on it. The bow went onto it and then it and the boat slowed down as, it, as the keel pushed it forwards and then it rolled out the way and off we went. No damage to us, no damage I hope to the whale. Of course, we don't want to be injuring them. But um, 
I've always I've always had to be aware of them, but always as like a very um, passive element in the ocean, not something I need to like dodge or get away with. But I suddenly got this like as I was motoring away from these two 25 foot animals that were, you know, we motored off and the one that had crossed our bow turned back around and was kind of like looking at us <laughs> as we departed. And the one that had been the one coming up from behind was looking at us. Um, I suddenly got a feeling like, wow, that could really add a whole new element to being on the ocean if you then need to be very careful about crossing paths with whales. So I'm not in any way saying that the whales have risen up against us, but they are very intelligent. They did have a nearly a year with massively reduced amount of um, uh, uh, sea traffic and, and a much greater ability to communicate over long distances. Um, could that add up to them uh, starting to realize that they can create an effect on the smaller versions of these things that no doubt torment their lives with with noise and 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 hitting them and everything else but yeah i thought i'd just throw that in there very uh, strange thing i've never seen before um i guess that's about it we we went in we yeah you know it, it took uh 14 days to go from the uk uh sorry from france to to saint pierre which was our first uh, stop off when we got to the other side of the Atlantic. Um, that's a good solid 2,000 mile uh, straight line. Probably by the time we wiggled and jiggled is like two and a half thousand miles. The uh, weather was light. Uh, the strongest wind we had at all in the in the center of the Atlantic was well, maybe like 15 knots, something like that, and a very uh, fair angle blowing us along. It was only as we approached Saint Pierre we, and the corner of the Avalon Peninsula at the bottom of um, Newfoundland there that we got into that weather that I described um, steep seas and, and a lot more wind uh, coming up from a weather system that was passing to the south of us uh, but I, I would say that again if I was going to critique myself I looked at the weather um, and, and was very aware of where this uh, weather system was and I actually had outside information coming into me from uh, assistant ashore who was looking at and checking the weather on a very regular basis uh, to, to look over my shoulder and, and make sure that was uh, as, as safe as it could be but I did not uh, correlate it um, to the fact that we we're going on to shallower ground uh, if I was going to be critical as soon as of course the waves started to come up you're like oh yeah of course here we go you know and I'm, I'm not overtly worried about big waves when you're in an 80 foot boat that weighs 20 tons but I should have um, been thinking of that and, and looking at the contour of the seabed as well as the contour of the isobars so I guess I'll throw that out there as uh, something that I I learned on this one then into Saint-Pierre uh, very regularly going there very very ably assisted by uh, our friend there Philippe Patrell thank you Philippe if you ever hear this um, he's the agent now for U-Ship in, um, in Saint-Pierre U-Ship is a big European chandlery with very competitive pricing um, the first time of them coming over to North America is the shop that Philippe has got in, uh, in Saint-Pierre there uh, you can make contact with him he is able to send things through to North America you may still find that even with the postage certainly if you're in Canada it's still cheaper to deal with Philippe and U-Ship then try and deal with West Marine or smaller chandlers so uh, we don't really have a sponsoring chandlery on uh, on this podcast or a Spartan Ocean Racing happy to <laughs> happy to get a big discount from somebody if they want we used to get a big discount from West Marine we used to use that a lot but we don't go to the US anymore West Marine's pulled out of Canada and if you don't use it you lose it with uh, West Marine but U-Ship um, everything that we bought for the boats uh, in Brest everything came from U-Ship bar, bar a few things you know and food and 
all that kind of stuff. Um, very competitive prices. And one thing we did buy there, which we'll be doing a review of on the Mariner YouTube channel soon, is we bought one of those electronic outboard motors, so electric rather outboard motors. Very, very impressive piece of kit, uh, called a torpedo. Um, I've got it now on the back of an eight foot Walker Bay dinghy here, and it is just transformative. Now have a look at that YouTube video, that'll be coming out soon. Um, but absolutely silent. It's like the equivalent of a three horsepower motor. So no, we're not on the plane and we're not like bouncing along at 20 knots. We're just chugging along, but it has taken that little boat and made it into something really very special from the fact that you can go out, um, take a coffee, you know, go out. It's completely silent, just tootling around on what had been an old like work boat and suddenly became this magical electric Cut magic carpet that you can take out and go and you know look around the island and look around the bay and it's just lovely and quiet and for somebody who's spent a working career uh, having to deal with diesel engines to the point that I've got tinnitus on the boats and then outboard motors and smaller and larger outboard motors um, I worry how many hours have been spent trying to start and uh, and problem solve uh, outboard motor issues but this one you just uh, turn it on and turn the throttle and silently the boat starts to move forward. It's the most unbelievable thing. So uh, we'll be uh, doing that review uh, soon. Uh, see that on, on YouTube. But um, yeah, U-Ship was very good for us and uh, Philippe was very helpful. When we got to Saint-Pierre, we were only the second boat that had gone into Saint-Pierre since COVID began. So there was a lot of attention from the police and from the immigration and customs, but we had absolutely adhered to everything that they needed us to do. I had four crew that were leaving. They all had PCR tests um, before they were able to uh, leave the boat. They all had to be negative before they could leave the boat and the rest of us didn't leave the boat at all. So we stayed in quarantine and obviously had those crews uh, PCR tests come back that would have sparked, come back positive, that would have sparked a whole other course of action. But we all had PCR tests before we departed France. We were at sea for 14 days with no uh, injuries and no worries and uh, and, and no illness. And um, then when we got to Saint-Pierre, it wasn't a surprise to discover that, uh, of course, none of us had it. And uh, and all the people that were traveling were vaccinated anyway. So we did everything we could. But uh, there was a bit of a stir, a bit of excitement. Uh, police rushing all over the place. We arrived there. Um, but yeah, all, all worked out for the best. And then um, the last little bit, the last little bit down from Saint-Pierre is about 380 miles. I have to say it was, <laughs> it was horrible. It was, uh, you know, when you get to the end of you know, there's lots of things where you have to learn to dislocate your expectations, right? They teach us in the military all the time that don't expect that, you know, your 10K run is going to finish around this corner um, at the 10K mark because it might be there's another 10K run starting right now. They often play those kind of uh, tricks on people to get people out of the expectation of, you know, they we say people can like they can smell the barn, like people's all the standards start to drop and all the expectations get loaded onto what's going to happen. You, you don't need that for a lot of um, things that you can end up doing, particularly at sea where, oh, we're going to be there in two days could turn into it's going to be four days until we get there because the wind's gone against us. When we got to the end of the transatlantic trip, uh, the bit of like just hopping down the coast to Nova Scotia feels like it should be very quick and it feels like you deserve for it to be really easy, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was foggy as all get out, which is absolutely the standard standard operating procedure for the uh, uh, Grand Banks because it's um, you've got the cold Labrador current coming down. Or is it? Yeah, the, the Labrador current comes down the Laurentide Channel between Newfoundland and um 
and uh, Cape Breton there, uh, bringing very, very cold water. You've got that very, very warm water coming up from the Caribbean. So you've already got a lot of thermal kind of uh, gradients that you try and deal with there. And then depending on what the temperature of the air is, it could be then when you get uh, condensing fog, sea fog uh, ab above that, um, uh, well, it can be above the cold water, it can be above the warm water, depending on what time of year it is. I gotta say, it's pretty much foggy out there the entire time. The race from Halifax to Saint-Pierre, which I've done a couple of times, um, it's almost characterized by the fact that the, the start gun goes bang, and then you go into the fog for three days, and then you finish. That's that's kind of how that race goes. So I wasn't too surprised to discover that uh, there was fog, but you just have that inner kind of like child, which is going, come on, like really, can we just not have some nice, nice weather here to finish off this trip? But uh, no, it was, um, about 15 or 20 knots it we were basing on a really fine reach it wasn't quite beating but it was about as close as you can get um the good thing was though that because we had lost four crew and we were only eight to begin with with just four people on board we had to resort to the autopilot i guess that's the last thing i'll talk about now not to drag this out too much but um we're dealing with an 80 foot uh, race boat. Um, we've described the, the, the kind of configuration here. Um, we've got our single centrally mounted <laughs> keel, uh, single uh, rudder, uh, carbon fiber mast, huge mainsails you might imagine, uh, a couple of headsails. And um, that boat is able to balance itself up and steer with minimum input uh, very, very easily. And that allows me to pull a trick which I've done many times with these boats and that is to drive the boat for th literally hundreds and hundreds of miles with just a sail tie holding the wheel. I took some footage of this, I'm going to be discussing it in one of the Mariner videos going forwards because I think it's a useful thing to know how to do. Um, I've done a lot of sailing under autopilot with um, autopilot systems ranging from the very most basic like tiller pushers that have a little flux gate compass in um, to ones which are multi-head systems with gyro compasses and nine axis accelerometers from Raymarine and all this kind of stuff so that I've seen the full range of what it is that can be put into play to to drive a modern sailing boat and uh, you know it's it's completely unbelievable technology what those things are able to do sailing around the world solo I probably only helm between five and ten percent of the time just particular conditions where I can be helpful because I can see the waves ahead I can see what's coming I can react to the gusts with the kite quicker than the autopilot can but on the whole they're absolutely amazing but as we were discussing with the navigation, what happens when all electricity fails? And I've actually been in this situation twice uh, on open 60s uh, in the middle of the ocean where I've lost all electronics. And at that point, you have to start to have some kind of plan B, which doesn't involve just stopping because uh, certainly the second time I had an issue, it was a giant flooding issue and I actually needed the ballast scoops, which push down out of the boat and allow me to put ballast water in and allow me to suck ballast water out I actually needed them to act as big bilge pumps that's the kind of that was in one of the early um, podcasts I guess it'd be like number six or seven or something like that where we were um, coming back across the Atlantic on the end of the Velux Five Oceans race and I had this massive uh, um, leaking incident and uh, very nearly uh, well, at the time, was worried that I was going to lose the boat, although in hindsight, I dealt with it. But um, the boat had to keep going, even though there was no electronics because everything was flooded, because I needed those scoops to be moving through the water and then available to suck out this huge amount of water that was inside the boat. Go back and, and have a listen to that one if you haven't already. But uh, yeah, the the 
thing with the sail tie on the wheel is that um, with the big powerful boats like this most modern boats have the windward ability they have because they're constantly sailing somewhat out of balance the headsails and the main when people say oh she's a beautifully balanced boat I hear she's quite slow that's the <laughs> that's the, the thing if you want to really power something up and and like cut to windward with the best possible ability then you need to have a boat which has got an oversized mainsail or that the uh, sail configuration or position of the mast or what have you has been canted to the point that there's a lot of effort going on behind the mast which requires a certain amount of wheel to be put on all the time to counteract that so as you're sailing along if you imagine that driving straight you put a little piece of tape on the wheel um, as you're sailing along on a beat you'll see that you want to put on enough wheel to induce about three to six degrees on the rudder um, to uh, facilitate uh, what well, it's going to allow you to go straight although the wheel will be slightly kicked off to one side depending on the tack you're on although you're going to be going straight the wheel's going to be slightly to one side now what does that do underwater the water deals with the underside of the boat as though the keel and the rudder are all one foil it doesn't like see them as two separate things so if you're driving along in your car you put your hand out the window and you angle your hand up then your hand will want to rise up and then you you know what you do of course you flick your hand the opposite way you angle your hand down and then your hand is pushed down that's how kids of course are flicking their hand up and down in that sine curve as they're moving along while the water going underneath the boat sees the the keel and the rudder as one continuous uh, foil and that foil has got a slight angle to the back edge of it which you're creating by the fact that you have the rudder slightly off this three to six degrees off to one side what you're doing is you're trying to keep the boat on a straight path because the mainsail is trying to round you up to windward and you've got this little bit of wheel on that's just keeping her head down so she doesn't come up to wind too much and that amount of wheel causes an, a net lift effect in the underwater sections of the boat between the, the keel and the rudder there is a net effect which moves um, to a, a perpendicular direction upwind it creates lift in the under sections of the boat in the underwater sections of the boat which is lifting uh, hydraulic lift I guess you know if aerodynamics and hydrodynamics are basically the same science with slightly different friction numbers different fr um, uh, Reynolds numbers but it's um, it's essentially modeling of the same components just a lot more compressed with a, with somewhat different effects when it's in very thick liquids as opposed to into in in air so my goodness me i'm getting stuck in hydrodynamics here let's just try and just pull up boy terrain terrain let's not talk about this too much so uh the net effect of the um rudder being slightly over to one side is that you get lift and this is one of the reasons why boats can be powerful can cut very much up to the wind they didn't understand it back in the day and it's something that is to be is to your benefit because obviously if you let go of the wheel the boat turns into the wind which is good for safety um, and it's very, it's much quicker to to sail that way because you get you can cancel out a lot of leeway if you're trying to sail the boat and not have someone actively holding the helm or an autopilot actively holding the helm then you need to depower the main slightly so that the boat is balanced when the wheel is in a roughly straight direction or certainly it doesn't need much input so what I do is get the boats to stay along and then slack down the um, the main sheet a little bit and I mean the main sheet rather than the traveler because I actually want to spill a little bit of wind out the top of the sail and then I can tie the sail tie which is what I use just onto the side deck onto the bottom of the stanchion or something and then I just tie it across so it's like 
grabbing hold of one of the spokes of the wheel, uh, kind of at the bottom of the wheel, which means that the wheel cannot turn any further away from the tie, but it can certainly come a lot closer to the tie if it needs to. And then you end up with this strange effect where certain pressures which go underneath the boat can be released by the fact that the wheel is able to rotate um, it would essentially be rotating the boat downwind, but it can't do that very far because the sail tie will stop it from traveling too far around its arc, right? The rim of the wheel can't move too far. But then when it goes the other way, there's enough wheel left on and held on by the, the, the where the tie holds the wheel that the boat cannot round up into the wind. You're just holding a little bit of wheel on just to keep it on course. It can, if it needs to, turn back downwind by the fact that the sail tie can go slack. It's not holding the wheel rigidly, um, but it cannot turn up to the wind. And then with a little bit of movement on your jib sheets and on your main sheet, um, you can get the boat to sail very nicely uh, on course. It's a slightly slower course you can't be like hard on the wind you can't be fully powered up so you know on the boats i've got but even with a very very slim keel and our keel literally would be on that boat it's probably three feet from front to back and you know inches thick and that's very deep so it has a lot of hydraulic uh, uh, potential and hydraulic uh, force that it's uh, it's imparting to the water going around it but it is not some like long big full keel there's no skeg on the rudder on these boats again it's a very long uh, and very carefully shaped rudder as you might imagine on a racing boat's rudder profile but it's not in any way um, any kind of traditional setup so even with those very thin um, appendages sticking out the boat by depowering the main slightly, tying on a sail tie that allows the wheel to rotate um, probably probably allows the wheel to rotate 45 degrees in one direction but nowhere in the other direction. I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, you can you can get the boat to sail very very nicely and then it will follow the apparent wind. I think it only went off course twice in 380 miles. We barely barely drove the boat for that one and that means that we can do a lot more of like uh, on deck listening because it's the fog we've got to make sure that we've got fog signals available if there's anybody out there maintain AIS watch maintain a radar watch on uh, we didn't have radar on this boat but we would have done um, if we if we'd had that available uh, obviously keep looking at the chart doing the log doing all these things we have to do but rather than people being out in freezing cold uh, fog at night super wet like disgruntled not really looking around at anything they can be much more bundled up closer to the companionway entrance cups of tea awareness conversations all those things that add up to the boat actually staying a lot more safe because people are on their game for the three hours or on deck when people have been on deck for two hours and they're wet and cold soaked to the skin with fog and spray uh, and steering a boat basically in a straight line not going very fast um, they're, they're not that brilliant at, uh, at keeping watch as you might imagine so the sail tie little Otto as I call him of course Otto pilot Otto the sail tie uh, doing his job once again as he's done I think I've driven I've driven Challenger about 6,000 miles with a sail tie so um, if my description didn't make any sense <laughs> it's not because it doesn't work it's just a it's kind of tricky to explain but um, yeah have a go on your boat and of course if you've got a tiller then um, the same effect can be created with uh, a piece of rope and a piece of bungee to hold the tiller where you want it it can still flop over uh, and compress the sail tie or at least make the sail tie go loose but it'll be pulled back to position by the piece of bungee on the other side so always have that in your back pocket if everything turns off you can still keep sailing the boat so um, 
Finally, we came into Halifax and uh, it was good. We had some friends ashore who were waiting for us to be there and had a lot of uh, food for us, which was absolutely wonderful. It was pretty late at night by the time we got in, um, but flat calm conditions, we were able to dock the boat and, uh, and enjoy at least a few bits passed over the rail. We were not able to clear into the country at that time when we arrived, which is you know not that uncommon with boats. It, uh, arriving at midnight, of course, the immigration officers may not be available. They might be dealing with other boats. They may be uh, having a sleep. <laughs> um, but they came down very early in the morning and cleared us into the country with no issues. So now the boat is sitting on anchor here in, uh, in the bay in front of the house. And um, yeah, have a look at the video, which is on YouTube. The next podcast I'm going to do is going to be all about the different events which Spartan's got uh, coming up. We've got a new website, uh, well, a new website setup, which is coming. We've had a few delays uh, getting that together over time now. A lot of projects going on a lot of different places, and I need to really be present to be able to help uh, redesign the website. But all of the new events, the Ocean Globe Race events, uh, all the stuff we're doing in uh, 2022 will be on there. Um, that's just getting into gear now. Some of the events you'll see are already sold out. We've already had people in contact. I know that the Newport Bermuda race is already sold out. I think there's only one boat available for the uh, Regatta del Sol Al Sol. There's a lot of people already on the uh, East Coast Flyer. There's people already booked on the Marconi. Like there's a lot of things uh, in the works. But as you can imagine, anybody that's been around Spartan in the last five years, of which there are thousands of people, um, they're all waiting when can we go sailing again so i'll be very happy to be able to start to turn the business over again it's been 18 months of just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and trying to survive we're now down to the last couple of days of like okay uh, making sure that our logistic plans worked out making sure that um everything is t's crossed and i's dotted with crew and all the rest of it but we should be able to press go on that uh in the next couple of days and then start to bring to you the stories of what's going on with all that. I've got to say with the Ocean Globe race now becoming a much bigger reality, remember this boat has been uh, brought into the fold here so that we can make it available for the veterans doing the, um, the Around the World uh, campaign and all the training they need to do. Obviously, we're going to be doing some other events with it as well. There's lots of opportunities to get on board her, but that project is becoming a much bigger reality now, now that there's an 80-foot part of the equipment is sitting like just outside the window here. So look for that. That's going to be episode 51. Um, if you haven't already, go and have a look at Patreon. That's developing quite nicely now, becoming much more of what I wanted it to be in the beginning. Uh, more seamanship um, videos on there. We've just done a one hour one, which is all about like the basics of being super comfortable on deck. Sunglasses, hats, sun cream, footwear, um, where to stand, seasickness, all that kind of stuff is uh, basics, which is often missed out uh, in, in sailing instruction, although it is the thing that adds up to being comfortable on the deck for many hours. So there's one hour video of that. We've obviously got the one about winches. We've got ones about new synthetic ropes and we've got ones about bowlins and it's all going on over there on Patreon. So you go to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to check that out. It ranges between five and a hundred dollars a month. For those who are doing the hundred dollars a month, they are also entered into a very small group of people which is a competition to win a transatlantic event with spartan so um, a year's worth of uh, patreon subscription um, could end up saving you thousands on the cost of doing a transatlantic voyage if indeed that's something that you want to do but um, if not down at the five dollar level just adds a little bit of support because as you might imagine hours of time go into the podcast youtube all of this stuff and uh, just a little bit of um 
pennies in the jar really makes a big difference to that as you can imagine so um, we've also got gear reviews if you go and have a look now at YouTube we've got a new gear review up for uh, AIS uh, units for inside your life jacket and EPIRB units what's the difference what's the benefits uh, of using those we've also got the one with the uh, spin lock and back toe life jacket from Team O compared and we've got lots more of those coming we've got the one for the torpedo outboard motor coming soon so there's a lot of different things going on here people have said to me when's the blog gonna restart well I guess we'll do that and then we'll also be able to start going actually sailing soon which is going to be pretty amazing isn't it actually get on the water and do what it is we're meant to do and there'll be more of the uh, vlog style YouTube videos that people love so much of just going out and sailing we've got some new uh, cameras which I can put onto my head and then you can see things from my perspective and I'll do a, a talk over the top of those to go through particular evolutions on the boat show you how I'm doing it what I see from my perspective I think you can tell you know where I'm looking and what I'm being aware of and with a decent narration over the top of it I can try and share a little bit more from the the uh, my point of view how I how I go about things so that's all coming but um for now uh, that's the story of bringing Weddle back across. Uh, she's here now, so say have a look at the website, www.spawnoceanracing.com. Check out the new trips on there. Check out pictures of the boat and, of course, the YouTube video. And um, see if you want to come sailing with us in 2022. But until then, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.